0: Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. Or as I like to call it, if I spent as much time on my body as I do on my brain, I'd be so fit right now. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today we're going to be talking about folk and fairy tales, specifically women, specifically witches. Now, there's one witchy character that keeps showing up in several forms throughout hundreds, even thousands of stories. Baba Yaga. I think I'll call this episode, I've Got 99 Problems, but a witch ain't one. I first ran across the infamous Baba Yaga in a novel by Orson Scott Card called Enchantment. If that name sounds familiar, by the way, he is also responsible for Ender's Game. The story is a modern time travel retelling of the Sleeping Beauty legend that heavily features Baba Yaga as the antagonist. I read it in high school and became deeply fascinated by Russian and Slavic culture as a result. Baba Yaga is also a character in Bill Willingham's Fables series, comics that follow the lives of our favorite folk and fairy tale characters who, incidentally, have been living incognito in our world for centuries. It's a very engaging premise and story, and if I remember correctly, she shows up about a third or halfway through the series. Enchantment and Fables are both really good and worth a look if you're interested in a new twist on some classics, but today we're going to take a look at two novels that feature Baba Yaga in their storytelling, talk a little bit about the part witches and magic play in folktale and fiction, and I'm going to share with you one of my favorite folktales of all time. It does not involve a witch, but a fierce and strong central character who saves the day and also happens to be a girl. Now, if I may, to get you in the right frame of mind, I'm going to start with a quote from Mario Jacobi in the book Witches, Ogres, and the Devil's Daughter, Encounters with Evil in Fairy Tales. Our specific Western conception of a witch derives from medieval times. Its specific meaning was developed by the theology of those times, which laid the groundwork for the great witch persecutions and trials. Etymologically, the German word for witch hex, is thought to be connected to the German substantive hag, meaning fence, edge, enclosure. This is connected to the English word hag, meaning an ugly or monstrous old woman. In accordance with this etymology, a witch would be a demonic being dwelling on fences or hedges, in fact, a fence rider or fence woman. This derivation seems to me highly significant. A hedge or fence marks a borderline. Thus, the witch would be a creature of the border region between the human and the demonic, psychologically, between the realm of consciousness and the unconscious. If we survey the oldest references to witches and related figures, we find three characterizations. One, a man-eating being. Two, a slovenly, loose-in-all-senses female. And three, a clown or actor. Consider that an actor is a master of transformation who can enchant himself and his audience through the use of masks. For primitive man, the portrayer of demons is at the same time the demon itself. Let's start by taking a look at Uprooted by Naomi Novik from Chapter 1. Our dragon doesn't eat the girls he takes, no matter what stories they tell outside our valley. We hear them sometimes from travelers passing through, They talk as though we were doing human sacrifice and he were a real dragon. Of course, that's not true. He may be a wizard and immortal, but he's still a man, and our fathers would band together and kill him if he wanted to eat one of us every ten years. He protects us against the wood, and we're grateful, but not that grateful. He doesn't devour them, really. It only feels that way. He takes a girl to his tower, and ten years later, he lets her go. But by then, she's someone different. Her clothes are too fine, and she talks like a courtier, and she's been living alone with a man for ten years, so of course she's ruined, even though the girls all say he never puts a hand on them. What else could they say? And that's not the worst of it. After all, the dragon gives them a purse full of silver for their dowry when he lets them go, so anyone would be happy to marry them, ruined or not. But they don't want to marry anyone. They don't want to stay at all. "'They forget how to live here,' my father said to me once, unexpectedly. I was riding next to him on the seat of the big empty wagon on our way home after delivering the week's firewood. We lived in Dvernik, which wasn't the biggest village in the valley, or the smallest, or the one nearest the wood. We were seven miles away. The road took us up over a big hill, though, and at the top, on a clear day, you could see along the river all the way to the pale grey strip of burned earth at the leading edge and the solid, dark wall of trees beyond.' The dragon's tower was a long way in the other direction, a piece of white chalk stuck in the base of the western mountains. I was still very small, not more than five, I think, but I already knew that we didn't talk about the dragon or the girls he took, so it stuck in my head when my father broke the rule. They remembered to be afraid, my father said. That was all. Then he clucked to the horses and they pulled on, down the hill and back into the trees. It didn't make much sense to me we were all afraid of the wood. But our valley was home. How could you leave your home? And yet the girls never came back to stay. The dragon let them out of the tower, and they came back to their families for a little while, for a week or sometimes a month, never much more. Then they took their dowry silver and left. Mostly they would go to Kralya and go to the university. Often as not, they married some city men." and otherwise they became scholars or shopkeepers, although some people did whisper about Jaguiga Bak, who'd been taken sixty years ago, that she became a courtesan and the mistress of a baron and a duke. But by the time I was born, she was just a rich old woman who sent splendid presents to all her grandnieces and nephews, and never came for a visit. So that's hardly like handing your daughter over to be eaten, but it's not a happy thing either. There aren't so many villages in the valley that the chances are very low. He takes only a girl of seventeen, born between one October and the next. There were eleven girls to choose from in my year, and that's worse odds than dice. Everyone says you love a dragon-born girl differently as she gets older. You can't help it, knowing you so easily might lose her. But it wasn't like that for me, for my parents. By the time I was old enough to understand that I might be taken, we all knew he would take Cassia. Only travelers passing through who didn't know ever complimented Cassia's parents or told them how beautiful their daughter was, or how clever, or how nice. The dragon didn't always take the prettiest girl, but he always took the most special one somehow. If there was one girl who was far and away the prettiest, or the most bright, or the best dancer, or especially kind, somehow he always picked her out, even though he scarcely exchanged a word with the girls before he made his choice." "'And Cassio was all those things. "'She had thick, weak golden hair "'that she kept in a braid to her waist, "'and her eyes were warm brown, "'and her laugh was like a song "'that made you want to sing it. "'She thought of all the best games "'and could make up stories "'and new dances out of her head. "'She could cook, fit for a feast, "'and when she spun the wool from her father's sheep, "'the thread came off the wheel smooth and even "'without a single knot or snarl. "'I know, I'm making her sound "'like something out of a story,' "'but it was the other way around. "'When my mother told me stories about the spinning princess "'or the brave goose girl or the river maiden, "'in my head I imagined them all a little like Cassia. "'That was how I thought of her. "'And I wasn't old enough to be wise, so I loved her more, "'not less, because I knew she would be taken from me soon. "'She didn't mind it,' she said. "'She was fearless, too. "'Her mother Winsa saw to that. "'She'll have to be brave.' I remember hearing her say to my mother once, while she prodded Cassia to climb a tree she'd hung back from, and my mother hugging her with tears. We lived only three houses from one another, and I didn't have a sister of my own, only three brothers much older than me. Cassia was my dearest. We played together from our cradles, first in our mother's kitchens, keeping out from underfoot, and then in the streets before our houses, until we were old enough to go running wild in the woods." I never wanted to be anywhere inside when we could be running hand in hand beneath the branches. I imagined the trees bending their arms down to shelter us. I didn't know how I would bear it when the dragon took her. My parents wouldn't have feared for me very much, even if there hadn't been Cassia. At seventeen, I was still a too-skinny colt of a girl with big feet and tangled, dirt-brown hair, and my only gift, if you could call it that— was I would tear or stain or lose anything you put on me between the hours of one day. My mother despaired of me by the time I was twelve, and let me run around in cast-offs from my older brothers, except for feast days, when I was obliged to change only twenty minutes before we left the house, and then sit on the bench before our door until we walked to church. It was still even odds whether I'd make it to the village green without catching on some branch or spattering myself with mud. You'll have to marry a tailor, my little Agnayeshka, my father would say laughing, when he came home from the forest at night and I went running to meet him, grubby-faced, with at least one hole about me and no kerchief. He swung me up anyway and kissed me. My mother only sighed a little. What parent could really be sorry to have a few faults in a dragon-born girl? So that's the first uh, few pages of Uprooted, and Agnieszka is a teenage girl living in this valley at the edge of a mysterious and dangerous wood. The dragon of the tale is a wizard who takes an apprentice from among the young women of his holdings once every ten years. I confess when I started this tale, the bits about her always getting tripped up and snagged by the world around her didn't quite gel with me, uh, and as I continued with the novel, there was very little explanation of why this was a character trait, apart from one brief observation from another character, Kasia, that left me thinking there would be further explanation later on. Unfortunately, that aspect of Agnieszka, Agnieszka's story remains a mystery to me. It's entirely possible that I missed a more detailed description of my reading, as I sometimes get so into a book that I'll fly through several pages and realize later on that I missed something. Baba Yaga comes in marginally in this book, as a former witch whose experiments and spells help Agnieszka find her way in this new world and build her own style and understanding of magic. There are some really cool elements in this story, specifically the fact that there's not one, but two awesome heroines to cheer on. Novik builds a lush world and the book is a fast and captivating read. It should be noted that the book has been optioned by Warner Brothers, so if you're into fantasy films, you may want to keep an eye out. You can find information about that project as it develops, as well as check out her other projects on her author website. The link is in the show notes. Now, Catherine Arden's first book, The Bear and the Nightingale, also features Baba Yaga as a peripheral character, albeit a much less benevolent one the heroine of this tale Vasilisa shares her name with one of Baba Yaga's most inf- most famous adver- adversaries not infamous uh, in Vasilisa the beautiful to make a long story short a young woman's mother dies and her father remarries an evil stepmother who brings her distaste for Vasilisa along with two hateful stepsisters into the girl's household Vasilisa is sent to accomplish a nearly impossible task, comes into contact with Baba Yaga, and with the help of an enchanted doll left to her by her mother and her own ingenuity and goodness, is able to save herself, rid herself of the evil stepfamily, and move on to a better life. In some versions, she even marries the Tsar. Arden's debut novel beautifully embraces the folktales of old Russia, and several motifs are seen throughout. In fact, the story begins with another fable and a strong introduction to the world that our heroine will come to inhabit. From Part 1, Frost It was late winter in northern Rus, the air sullen with wet that was neither rain nor snow. The brilliant February landscape had given way to the dreary grey of March, and the household of Pyotr Vladimirovich were all sniffling from the damp and thin from six weeks fasting on black bread and fermented cabbage. But no one was thinking of chillblains or runny noses or even, wistfully, of porridge and roast meats, for Danya was to tell a story. That evening the old lady sat in the best place for talking—in the kitchen. On the wooden bench beside the oven, this oven was a massive affair, built of fired clay, taller than a man, and large enough that all four of Pyotr Vladimirovich's children could have fit easily inside. The flat top served as a sleeping platform. Its innards cooked their food, heated their kitchen, and made their steam baths for the sick. What tale will you have tonight, Dunya? Inquired, enjoying the fire at her back. Pyotr's children sat before her perched on stools. They all loved stories, even the second son, Sasha, who was a self-consciously devout child, and would have insisted, had any one asked him, that he preferred to pass the evening in prayer. But the church was cold, the sleet outside unrelenting. Sasha had thrust his head out of doors, gotten a face full of wet, and retired vanquished, to a stool a little apart from the others, where he sat affecting an expression of pious indifference." The others let up a clamor on hearing Dunya's question. Finis the falcon! Ivan the gray wolf! Firebird! Firebird! Little Alyosha stood on his stool and waved his arms, the better to be heard over his bigger siblings, and Pyotr's boarhound raised its big, scarred head at the commotion. But before Dunya could answer, the outer door clattered open, and there came a roar from the storm without. A woman appeared in the doorway, shaking the wet from her long hair. Her face glowed with the chill, but she was thinner than even her children. The fire cast shadows in the hollows of cheek and throat and temple. Her deep-set eyes threw back the firelight. She stooped and seized Alyosha in her arms. The child squealed in delight. Mother, he cried. Matyoshka! Marina Ivanovna sank onto her stool, drawing it nearer the blaze. Alyosha, still clasped in her arms, wound both fists around her braid. She trembled, though it was not obvious under her heavy clothes. "'Pray the wretched you delivers tonight," she said. "'Otherwise I fear we shall never see your father again. "'Are you telling stories, Dunya?' "'If we might have quiet,' said the old lady tartly. "'She had been Marina's nurse, too, long ago.' "'I'll have a story,' said Marina at once. Her tone was light, but her eyes were dark." Dunya gave her a sharp glance. The wind sobbed outside. "'Tell the story of Frost, Donyashka. Tell us of the Frost Demon, the Winter King Karashun. He is abroad tonight and angry at the thaw.' Dunya hesitated. The elder children looked at each other. In Russian, Frost was called Morosko, the Demon of Winter. But long ago the people called him Karashun, the Death God.' Under that name he was king of black midwinter who came for bad children and froze them in the night. It was an ill-omened word, and unlucky to speak it while he still held the land in his grip. Marina was holding her son very tightly. Alyosha squirmed and tugged his mother's braid. "'Very well,' said Dunya, after a moment's hesitation. "'I shall tell the story of Morozko, and his kindness and his cruelty.' She put a slight emphasis on this name— the safe name that could not bring them ill luck. Marina smiled sardonically and untangled her son's hands. None of the others made any protest, though the story of Frost was an old tale, and they had all heard it many times before. In Dunya's rich, precise voice it could not fail to delight. In a certain princedom, began Dunya. She paused and fixed a quelling eye upon Alyosha, who was squealing like a bat and bouncing in his mother's arms. "'Hush!' said Marina, and handed in the end of her braid again to play with. "'In a certain princedom, the old lady repeated, with dignity, "'there lived a peasant who had a beautiful daughter.' "'What's her name?' mumbled Alyosha. He was old enough to test the authenticity of fairy tales by seeking precise details from the tellers. "'Her name was Marfa,' said the old lady. "'Little Marfa. "'And she was beautiful as sunshine in June, "'and brave and good-hearted besides.' but Marfa had no mother. Her own had died when she was an infant. Although her father had remarried, Marfa was still as motherless as any orphan could be. For while Marfa's stepmother was quite a handsome woman, they say, and she made delicious cakes, wove fine cloth and brewed rich kvass, her heart was cold and cruel. She hated Marfa for the girl's beauty and goodness, favoring instead her own ugly, lazy daughter in all things." First the woman tried to make Marfa ugly, in turn, by giving her all the hardest work in the house, so that her hands would be twisted, her back bent, and her face lined. But Marfa was a strong girl, and perhaps possessed a bit of magic, for she did all her work uncomplainingly and went on growing lovelier and lovelier as the years passed. So the stepmother, seeing Alyosha's open mouth, Dunya added, "Darya Nikolaevina was her name, finding she could not make Marfa hard or ugly, schemed to rid herself of the girl once and for all. Thus, one day at midwinter, Darya turned to her husband and said, "'Husband, I believe it is time for our Marfa to be wed.' Marfa was in the ispa cooking pancakes. She looked at her stepmother with astonished joy, for the lady had never taken an interest in her except to find fault. But her delight quickly turned to dismay and I have just the husband for her. Load her into the sledge and take her to into the forest. We shall wed her to Morosko, the lord of winter. Can any maiden ask for a finer or richer bridegroom? Why, he is master of the white snow, the black firs, and the silver frost. The husband, his name was Boris Borisovich, stared in horror at his wife. Boris loved his daughter, after all, and the cold embrace of the winter god is not for mortal maidens. But perhaps Daria had a bit of magic of her own, for her husband could refuse her nothing. Weeping, he loaded his daughter into the sledge, drove her deep into the forest, and left her at the foot of a fir tree. Long the girl sat alone, and she shivered and shook and grew colder and colder. At length she heard a great clattering and snapping. She looked up to behold Frost himself coming toward her, leaping among the trees and snapping his fingers." "'But what did he look like?' Olga demanded. Dunya shrugged. "'As to that, no two-tellers agree. "'Some say he is not but a cold, crackling breeze whispering among the firs. "'Others say he is an old man in a sledge with bright eyes and cold hands. "'Others say he is like a warrior in his prime, but robed all in white with weapons of ice. "'No one knows. "'But something came to Marfa as she sat there.' An icy blast whipped around her face, and she grew colder than ever. And then Frost spoke to her, in the voice of the winter wind and the falling snow. "'Are you quite warm, my beauty?' Marfa was a well-brought-up girl who bore her troubles uncomplainingly, so she replied, "'Quite warm, thank you, dear Lord Frost.' At this the demon laughed, and as he did, the wind blew harder than ever. All the trees groaned above their heads— Frost asked again, "'And now, warm enough, sweetheart?' Marfa, though she could barely speak from the cold, again replied, "'Warm. I am warm, thank you.' Now it was a storm that raged overhead, the wind howled and gnashed its teeth, until poor Marfa was certain it would tear the skin from her bones. But Frost was not laughing now, and when he asked a third time, "'Warm, my darling?' She answered, "'forcing the words between frozen lips as blackness danced before her eyes. "'Yes, warm. I am warm, my Lord Frost.' "'Then he was filled with admiration for her courage, and took pity on her plight. "'He wrapped her in his own robe of blue brocade and laid her in his sledge. "'When he drove out of the forest and left the girl by her own front door, "'she was still wrapped in the magnificent robe, "'and bore also a chest of gems and gold and silver ornaments.' Marfa's father wept with joy to see the girl once more. But Darya and her daughter were furious to see Marfa so richly clad and radiant with a prince's ransom at her side. So Darya turned to her husband and said, "'Husband, quickly, take my daughter Liza up in your sledge. The gifts that Frost has given Marfa are nothing to what he will give my girl.' Though in his heart Boris protested all this folly, he took Liza up in his sledge, The girl was wearing her finest gown and wrapped in heavy fur robes. Her father took her deep into the woods and left her beneath the same fir tree. Liza, in turn, sat a long time. She had begun to grow very cold, despite her furs, when at last frost came through the trees, cracking his fingers and laughing to himself. He danced right up to Liza and breathed into her face, and his skin was the wind out of the north that freezes skin to bone. He smiled and asked, "'Warm enough, darling?' Liza, shuddering, answered, "'Of course not, you fool! Can you not see that I am near perished with cold?' The wind blew harder than ever, howling about them in great tearing gusts. Over the den he asked, "'And now, quite warm?' The girl shrieked back, "'But no, idiot, I am frozen. I have never been colder in my life. I am waiting for my bridegroom Frost, but the oaf hasn't come.' Hearing this, Frost's eyes grew hard as adamant. He laid his fingers on her throat, leaned forward, and whispered into the girl's ear, "'Warm now, my pigeon!' But the girl could not answer, for she had died when he touched her and lay frozen in the snow. At home Darya waited, pacing back and forth. Two chests of gold at least,' she said, rubbing her hands. "'A wedding dress of silk velvet and bridal blankets of the finest wool.' Her husband said nothing. The shadows began to lengthen, and there was still no sign of her daughter. At length, Daria sent her husband out to retrieve the girl, admonishing him to have care with the chests of treasure. But when Boris reached the tree where he had left his daughter that morning, there was no treasure at all, only the girl herself, lying dead in the snow. With a heavy heart the man lifted her in his arms and bore her back home. The mother mother ran out to meet them. Liza, she called, my love. Then she saw the corpse of her child, huddled up in the bottom of the sledge. At that moment, the finger of Frost touched Daria's heart too, and she fell dead on the spot. There was a small, appreciative silence. Then Olga spoke up plaintively. But what happened to Marfa? Did she marry him, King Frost? Cold embrace indeed, Kolia muttered, to no one in particular, grinning. Dunya gave him an austere look, but did not deign to reply. "'Well, no, Olia,' she said to the girl. "'I shouldn't think so. "'What use does winter have for a mortal maiden? "'More likely she married a rich peasant "'and brought him the largest dowry in all Rus. "'Olga looked ready to protest this unromantic conclusion, "'but Dunya had already risen with a creaking of bones, "'eager to retire.' The top of the oven was large as a great bed, and the old and the young and the sick slept upon it. Dunya made her bed there with Alyosha. The others kissed their mother and slipped away. At last Marina herself rose. Despite her winter clothes, Dunya saw anew how thin she had grown, and it smote the old lady's heart. It will soon be spring, she comforted herself. The woods will turn green, and the beasts give rich milk. I will make her pie with eggs and curds and pheasant, and the sun will make her well again. But the look in Marina's eyes filled the old nurse with foreboding. Both of these novels are well worth a read, and I encourage you to check them out if you get a chance. Now, to round out our storytelling uh, for today, I'm going to share with you a story that I found in an anthology that I bought when I was in high school. Now, I'll put a link in the show notes for you to um, this book. It's called Fearless Girls, Wise Women, and Beloved Sisters, Heroines and Folktales from Around the World. And this collection was put together by Kathleen Reagan. Ragan, I'm so sorry if I mispronounced your name. Uh, she was looking for books that featured strong girl characters to share with her daughter, who was um, at the age where she was reading her stories, um, and, and was dismayed not to find any. So she did some research and put together this beautiful anthology with a collection of folk tales from around the world. It's really cool. Um, and I'm going to share with you my favorite of the bunch. This is called Anayat. Once upon a time, young Vakagan, the only son of King Vaka, was standing on his balcony. It was a spring morning. Many different birds were singing in the garden, but best of all sang the nightingale. As soon as he began to sing, all the other birds would fall silent and listen, seeking to master the secrets of his art. One would imitate his twittering, another his trills, a third his whistling, and then, all together, they would repeat the melodies they had just learnt. But Vakagan was not listening. His heart was troubled by quite other matters. His mother, Queen Ashkin, came up to him and said, "Vaka, my little son, I see you have some sorrow. Do not hide it from us. Tell us the cause of your sadness.' "'Mother, I have no taste for the pleasures of life.' "'I want to go away to some secluded retreat, to the village of Atsik, for instance. "'I suppose the only reason why you want to go to Atsik is to be near that cunning Anaya of yours. "'How do you know her name, Mamma? "'The nightingales in our garden told me about her, Vaka, dearest boy. "'Do not forget that you are the son of the king of Afghanistan. "'A king's son must select a princess for his bride, or a woman of rank, but not a simple peasant girl.' THE KING OF GEORGIA HAS THREE DAUGHTERS. YOU MAY CHOOSE ANY OF THEM. THE PRINCE OF GOUGAR HAS A BEAUTIFUL DAUGHTER, THE ONLY HEIR TO HIS RICH ESTATES. AND THE DAUGHTER OF THE PRINCE OF Sayunik IS BEAUTIFUL TOO. OR EVEN Varsanik, THE DAUGHTER OF OUR CHIEF warlord, wh- WHOM WE HAVE BROUGHT UP AND WHO HAS GROWN TO MAIDENHOOD UNDER OUR EYES. WHAT FAULT DO YOU FIND IN HER? MOTHER, I WANT NO ONE BUT Anayat. AND Vakagan RAN OUT INTO THE GARDEN. Vakagan HAD JUST TURNED TWENTY. He had been very delicate, pale, and weak. Vakagon, my son, his father had said, all my hope is in you. You will have to marry, for that is the way of the world. But Vakagan would not listen. Early in the morning he would go off into the mountains to hunt, and he would come home late in the evening. Many princes desired his friendship, but he avoided them. He would take with him only his brave and devoted servant Vaginak, and his faithful sheepdog Zangi. Folk they met out hunting could not tell which was the prince, which the servant. They were both dressed in the same plain huntsman's garb, a bow slung over their shoulders and a broad-bladed dagger at their belts. This outdoor life did Vakagan good. He grew more manly, stronger, and healthier. Once it happened that Vakagan and Vaganak came to the village of Atzik and sat down by the spring to rest. At that time the village maidens came to draw water at the spring. Vakagan was thirsty and asked for some water. One of the maidens filled a jug and offered it to Vakagan. Suddenly, another snatched away the jug and poured out the water. Then she again filled the jug and again poured out the water. Vakagan's throat was parched with thirst, and it seemed as though the maiden were teasing, teasing him now holding the jug under the trickle of water, now emptying it again. Only after she had done this six times did she offer the jug to Vakagon. Vakagan drank and asked the girl, "'Why did you not give me water straight away? Were you teasing me or joking?' "'It is not our custom here to joke with strangers,' answered the girl. "'But you were tired and hot, and the cold water might have done you harm. That is why I was slow.' The maiden's answer impressed Vakagan, and her beauty enchanted him. He asked, "'What is your name?' "'Aniat,' answered the girl. "'Who is your father?' My father is the shepherd of this village, Aran. But why do you ask our names? Is it a sin to ask someone's name? If it is not, then say who you are and from whence you came. Should I tell you the truth or a lie? Whichever you think better matches your own dignity. My dignity were better matched by the truth, and the truth is that I may not yet say who I am. But I give you my word that I shall soon tell you. Very well and now give me back my jug. Bidding farewell to the prince, Anayat took her jug and walked away. The hunters returned home. The devoted Vaganak told the queen all that had happened. That was how Vakagan's mother had come to know her son's secret. Vakagan would not hear of any other bride. At last the king and queen agreed to his choice. They sent Vaganak and two important noblemen to Atsik to ask for the hand of Anayat. The shepherd Aran gave them a courteous welcome. The guests sat down on the carpet which Aran laid out for them. "'What a wonderful carpet!' said Vagenak. "'I suppose it was woven by the mistress of the house.' "'I have no wife,' answered Aran. "'She died ten years ago. The carpet was woven by my daughter Anayat.' "'Even in the great rooms of our king there is no clad that your daughter is so skilled,' said the nobleman. "'Her fame has spread to the palace itself. The king has sent us to speak with you.' He wants you to give your daughter's hand in marriage to his only son, the heir to the throne. The nobleman expected Aran not to believe his ears or to leap from his place with joy, but the shepherd did neither. He sank his head and began to trace the patterns of the carpet with his forefinger. Vaganat said, Why are you sad, brother Aran? It is joy we have brought you, not sorrow. We do not wish to take your daughter by force. If you wish, you will give her away. "'If you do not, you will not.' "'Dear guests,' replied Aran, "'the thing is that I will not constrain my daughter. "'If she consents, then I have nothing to say against it.' "'At that moment a came in carrying a basket of ripe fruits. "'She bowed to the guests, set the fruit out on a dish, "'and, having served them with it, sat down to work with, at her lace-frame. "'The noblemen gazed at her and were all astonished by the swiftness of her fingers.' "'Anayat, why do you work alone?' asked Vaginak. "'You have many pupils, or so I have heard.' "'Yes,' said Anayat. "'But I have let them all go to help with the grape harvest.' "'I hear you teach your pupils to read and write.' "'Yes,' answered Anayat. "'Now even our shepherds read and teach one another while grazing their sheep. "'All the tree-trunks in our forests have words carved upon them. "'The fortress-walls, the stones, and rocks are written upon with coal.' One writes one word, the next continues, and so our ravines and mountains have become full of written words. There is no such respect for learning where we come from, replied Vaganak. Town dwellers are lazy. But if you would come to live with us, you would teach them all application. Anayat, leave off your work for a moment. I have business with you. See what gifts the king has sent you. Vaganak produced silk dresses and precious jewelry. Anayat glanced at them briefly and asked, how have I deserved such favor from the king? The son of our king, Vakagan, saw you at the spring. You gave him water to drink and pleased him, and the king sent us to ask your hand in marriage for the prince. This ring, these necklaces, these bangles, they are all for you. So the huntsman was the king's son? Yes. He is a youth of great beauty, but does he know any trade? Anayat, he is the son of the king— All his subjects are there to serve him. He does not need a trade. That's all very well, but a ruler may become a servant. Everyone should know a trade, whether he be king, servant, or prince. Anayat's words astonished the nobleman, but the shepherd Aran approved his daughter's words. You mean to say you are refusing the prince simply because he does not know a trade? asked the nobleman. Yes, and take back all these things that you have brought with you, and tell the prince that he pleases me well, but that—and may he forgive me for it—I have taken an oath never to marry a man who knows no trade. The ambassadors saw that Anayat was firmly resolved, and did not insist. They returned to the palace and told the king all that had happened. When they heard Anayat's decision, the king and queen were very glad. Now Vakagon would surely relinquish his intention. But Vakagan said— Anayat is right. I should be master of some trade like everybody else. The king called for a council of noblemen, and they all agreed that the most suitable trade for a prince was the weaving of brocade. A skilled master of this craft was brought from Persia. In the course of one year, Vakagon had learnt to weave brocade and had woven a length for Anayat from fine golden threads, which he sent to her through Vaganak. When she received it, Anayat said, In the words of the proverb, the trials of fate will find him unafraid, needs musts, and he will ply the weaver's trade. Tell the prince that I consent, and take him this carpet as a gift from me. So the preparations for the wedding were begun, and it was celebrated for seven days and seven nights. However, soon after the wedding, Vagagan's devoted friend and servant, Vaganak disappeared. He was searched for far and wide, and at long last all hope of finding him had to be abandoned. In the meantime, the king and queen, having lived to a ripe old age, died, and Vakugan became king in his father's stead. Once Anayat said to her husband, "'O king, I see that you lack sound knowledge of your realm. People do not tell you the whole truth. They speak as though all were well. But perhaps this is not quite so. It would be a good thing for you to go walking through your kingdom from time to time dressed either as a beggar or as a tradesman or a workman.' "'You are right, Anayat,' replied the king. "'Before, when I used to go hunting, I knew the people better. "'But how can I go away now? "'Who will rule the kingdom in my absence?' "'I will,' answered Anayat, and added. "'No one will even know that you are away. "'All right. "'I shall set out on my journey to-morrow. "'If I do not return within twenty days, "'then you will know that I am either dead "'or have met with some misfortune.' King Vakagon began to wander through his realm dressed as a simple peasant. He saw much and heard much, and at last he came to the town of Peros. In the center of the town was a wide square. There was a market there, and all round the market stood the workshops of the tradesmen and the stalls of the merchants. Once Vagagan was sitting on the square. Suddenly he saw a crowd of people following an old man. The old man walked very slowly. The people cleared the road before him and set down bricks for him to step on. Vagagan asked the first comer who the old man might be he was answered. "'Don't you know? That is our high priest. He is so holy that he will not even put foot to the ground in case he might inadvertently crush some insect.' Then the people spread out a carpet on the square, and the high priest sank down upon it on his knees and rested. Vakagon pushed his way through to the front to get a closer look at the old man, and to hear what he had to say. The great priest had sharp eyes." He looked at Vakagan and saw at once that this was someone from far away, and asked, Who are you and what are you doing here? I am a workman from another land, answered Vakagan. I have come to this town seeking employment. Good. Come with me. I will give you work and pay you well. Vakagon nodded his head in sign of agreement. The great priest whispered a few words to his attendants, and they all went off in different directions. "'Sometime later they returned with porters carrying every conceivable kind of stores. "'Then the high priest rose and set off for his own house. Vakagan followed him in silence. "'So they came to the city gates. "'Here the high priest blessed the people, and they all went their separate ways. "'There remained only the priests, the porters, and Vakagan. "'Leaving the town behind them they came to a great wall. "'The high priest got out a key and opened the gates.' Behind the wall was a spacious square in the middle of which rose a temple surrounded by cells. The porters put down their loads on the ground. The high priest led the porters and Vakagon round to the other side of the temple, opened an iron door, and said, "'Go in. You will be given employment here.' Amazed, they filed silently in and found themselves in a dark underground passage. The high priest locked the door behind them. Knowing that their retreat was cut off, the workmen went on and forward, They walked on for a long time. Suddenly, far ahead, they caught sight of a pale gleam of light, and they emerged into a cave from whence came the sound of groans and cries. The prisoners looked around the rocky walls with amazement, listening to the groans and cries. At that moment, a kind of shadow loomed towards them through the half-light. Gradually getting nearer and growing denser, it took on a human form. Vakugan went up to the shadow and asked loudly, "'Who are you, man or devil?' "'If you are a man, tell me where we are.' "'The shadow came closer and stopped, trembling before them. "'It was a man, but such a man, "'with the face of a corpse, sunken eyes, and sharp cheekbones, "'in a word, a skeleton, each of whose bones could be counted. "'Gibbering and weeping, he said, "'Follow me. I will show you everything.' "'After a narrow passage, they all came out to a second cave. "'Here many people were lying, writhing in their death agonies.' In the third cave were huge cauldrons in which, apparently, dinner was cooking. Vakagon bent over one of the cauldrons and recoiled in horror, saying nothing to his comrades. Then they found themselves in yet another corridor. Here, in the semi-darkness, several hundred deathly pale people were at work, some embroidering, some knitting, others sewing. The corpse-like man said, "'The devil-priest who enticed you all here by deceit brought us also into this underground place.' I do not know how many years I have been here, for here there is neither day nor night, but only eternal, unending gloom. I only know that all who came here together with me are dead. They bring people here, those who know some trade and those who do not. The first are made to work until they die. The second are taken away to the slaughterhouse and come at last to those terrible cauldrons which you have just seen. The old devil-priest is not alone. All the priests help him. Vakugan— Having taken a good look, recognized the speaker as his own devoted Vaginac, but he said nothing in case the joy of reunion should snap the slender thread of Vaginat's life. When Vaginac went away, Vaginac asked his companions who they were and what they could do. One said he was a tailor, another a weaver, and Vaginac decided to declare the rest his assistance. Soon footsteps were heard, and a fierce priest appeared before them, accompanied by an armed rabble. "'Are you the new arrivals?' asked the priest. "'Yes, at your grace's service,' replied Vakagan. "'Which of you knows any trade?' "'We all do,' said Vakagan. "'We can weave precious brocades worth a hundred times more than gold. "'Does your cloth really cost so dear?' "'I do not lie, and you can always put me to the test.' "'I'll put you to the test, all right. "'Now tell me what instruments and materials you need, "'and you will go to work in the general workshop.' "'Our work will not go well there,' Vakagan objected. "'It would be better for us to work here. "'And as far as food is concerned, you must know that none of us are meat-eaters. "'We will die if we eat meat.' "'All right,' said the priest. "'I will send you bread and vegetables. "'But if your work is less precious than you boast, "'I shall send you to the slaughterhouse "'and give orders that you shall all have a nice little dose of torture "'before you are killed.' "'The priest sent them fruit and bread.' They shared the bread with Vaginak and the others, and Vagagan got down to work. He swiftly wove a length of splendid brocade and covered it with patterns which told of all the torments of this underground hell. But not every eye would know how to decipher the patterns. The priest was delighted with the brocade. Vakagon said, "'I told you that our cloth is worth a hundred times more than gold, but know that its real value is double this again because of the talismans we weave into it.' "'It is a pity that ordinary people set no store by them. "'The only person who knows their true worth "'is the wise queen, Aniat. "'When he heard the true worth of the brocade, "'the greedy priest's eyes nearly popped out of his head. "'He decided not to share the profits with anyone. "'He said nothing to the high priest "'and did not even show him the the, the brocade, "'but set out with it then and there. "'Anayat had been ruling the country well, "'and all were content.' No one even knew that the king had gone away. But the queen herself was very anxious. Ten days had already passed since the covenanted time, and Wakagan had not returned. At night, she had horrible dreams. During the day, she was troubled by various hallucinations. The dog Zangi kept howling and whining. Wakagan's stallion would take no fodder and whinnied pitifully, like a foal left behind by its mother. The hens crowed like cocks, and the cocks cried in the evening without, with the voices of pheasants. The ripples of the river flowed silently without lap or gurgle. Anayat the Courageous was full of fear. She even started at her own shadow. One morning she was informed of the arrival of a foreign merchant offering some precious merchandise. Anayat ordered the stranger to be brought into her presence. A man with a terrible face bowed low before her, and held out a length of golden brocade on a silver tray. She looked at the cloth, not noticing the patterns, and asked, "'What is the price of your brocade?' "'Gracious Sovereign, it is three hundred times as dear as gold, if we consider only the work and the material. As for my own labor and industry, it is for your grace yourself to judge their worth.' "'Is it really so very dear?' "'Most gracious queen! "'There is a priceless virtue upon it. "'You see these patterns? "'They are not simple patterns, but talismans. "'Whoever wears this cloth will be safeguarded all their days "'from all sorrow and misfortune.' "'Really?' asked Anayat, and opened out the brocade, "'on which there were no talismans, but patterns of letters. "'Silently Aniat read them. "'My incomparable Aniat, "'I have fallen into a terrible hell.' "'He who brings you this brocade is one of the demon jailers of this hell. "'Vaganak is with me. "'Seek us east of Peros beneath a wild temple. "'Without your help we shall all perish. "'Vakagan.'" Shattered, Anaya read the letter a second and then third time. She pretended to be admiring the pattern and then said, "'You are right. "'The patterns of your brocade have a power for mirth and comfort.' Only this morning I was sad, and now I am merry and light of heart. This brocade is priceless. I would not hesitate to give half my kingdom for it. But you probably know yourself that no created thing is worth more than the Creator. Long life, attend your majesty, you speak the truth. Bring me the man who made this brocade. He must be rewarded equally with you. Gracious queen, the greedy priest replied, I do not know who made it. I bought it from a Jew in India, and he bought it from an Arab, and as for the Arab, who knows where he came by it. But you have only just said yourself that the materials in the work cost you much money. Therefore, you did not buy the brocade. You yourself had it woven. Gracious queen, that's what they told me in India, and I— Silence! Anait grew angry. I know who you are. Hey, men to me, take this man and throw him into prison.' After this order had been carried out, Anayat ordered the trumpeter to sound the alarm. The townsfolk, whispering anxiously among themselves, foregathered outside the palace. No one knew what it was all about. Anaya appeared on the balcony, armed from head to foot. "'Citizens,' she said, "'the life of your king is in danger. Let all those who love him and to whom his life is dear follow me. By midday we should be in the town of Peros.' "'In an hour's time the whole town was in arms. "'Aniat mounted her fiery steed and ordered, "'Forward, follow me!' and set off at a gallop for Peros. "'On the square at Peros she pulled her excited stallion back onto his haunches. "'The inhabitants took her for a divinity come down from the skies, "'fell on their knees and bowed to the ground before her. "'Where is your leader?' asked Anniat proudly. "'I, your servant, am the leader here,' "'said one of the folk of Peros. "'You careless steward! "'You do not even know what goes on in the temple of your gods! "'Your humble servant knows nothing,' the leader of the townsfolk answered, bowing. "'Perhaps you don't even know where your temple is.' "'Indeed I do, indeed, of course. "'Then show me the way.' "'The leader set out with Anayat. "'Behind them walked to the crowd. "'The priests thought that the people were coming to pray, "'and opened the first iron door.' "'Anayat rode into the square and ordered them to open the temple. "'Only then did the priests realize what was afoot. "'The high priest flung himself on the valiant rider, "'but Anayat's clever horse trampled him with his hooves. "'Then the troops came up and quickly put an end to the rest of the priests. "'The people watched in terror and amazement. "'Come closer,' cried Anayat. "'See what is hidden in the sanctuary of your gods.' "'Quickly they broke down the doors of the temple.' A terrible sight met the people's eyes. From out of the hellish dungeons came crawling people like specters from beyond the grave. Many were dying and could scarcely keep upright on their shaky legs. Others, blinded by the light, were tottering on their feet. Last of all came Vakugan and Vaganak. They walked with closed eyes so that the brilliant light of day should not blind them. The men-at-arms ran down into the hell below and began to carry out the bodies of the dead, the instruments of torture, and the tools of the craftsmen. The citizens helped them, deeply ashamed. Then Anaya entered the hastily rigged-up tent where Vagagan and Vaginak were awaiting her. The lovers sat down side by side and could not take their eyes off one another. Vaginak kissed his lady's hand and burst into tears. Incomparable queen, you saved our lives today. You're wrong there, Vaganak, Vakagan contradicted him. The queen saved us long ago, on the day she asked, And does the son of your king know a trade? Do you remember how you laughed and answered that question? The story of the adventurous good king Vakagan spread through all the towns and villages. Even in other countries they spoke of it, and all praised Vakagan and Anayat. The wandering minstrels made songs about them. It is a pity that these songs are no longer remembered. But to make up for it, The story of Vakugan and Anaya is still told to this day. I loved that story so much the first time I read it, and I still do. Uh, The things that stick out to me most are how she is so determined to help others to learn and better themselves, uh, even those who you might not normally think needed it. So at the time, I don't think it was typical for the average person to learn to read and write, but she was assisting the people of her village, nor was it typical for a prince to learn a trade, but she insisted on it before marrying him, and as they say, it ended up saving everyone. Um, I just love the fact that she gets on a horse and rides into this village to save her husband and the others that are trapped with him. And that is episode two of Blue Stocking. I will have uh, links and other things of note in the show notes. I hope you have enjoyed and If you have questions or suggestions for future episodes, you can email me at bluestockingpod at gmail.com.